The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. Over the next two episodes, we're going to be listening to talks from the Build Conversation series, which explores new perspectives from design, architecture, engineering, science and the arts to reflect on how these disciplines can address the urgent issues of our times. Each of the talks in this series responds to one of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. In the first episode of the series, BUILD program curator Joni Taylor chairs a conversation with two visionary thought leaders using their exploration of design practices to reflect on our relationship to life on land, global goal number 15. Jeefa Greenaway is an architect, interior designer, academic, director of Greenaway Architects and co-founder chair of Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria. Australia's only Indigenous Design Association. He is of Wallawan, Gamilaroi and German heritage. Leanne Rosler is a designer, artist and curator championing design that balances perspectives of nature, sustainability, creativity and community. She co-founded Sydney's internationally renowned Dinosaur Designs and in recent years founded Superlocal Studio, a space that enables the creation of thoughtful practices. This talk is supported by the Ove Arup Foundation and was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House Centre for Creativity in May 2022. Hi, and welcome to our first, very first Build Conversation being held here in the Centre for Creativity. My name is Joni Taylor, I'm the Build Curator, and I'm joined tonight with my very special guests, Leanne Rossler and Jifa Greenway. BUILD is a brand new learning program that takes place here at the Centre for Creativity. It explores the intersection of architecture, engineering and design with the creative arts, not just with the built environment, but with the natural world around us. Along with this talk series, we're also um, holding a series of school and tertiary programs focusing on STEAM, so science, technology, engineering and maths. The program is supported by the Ove Arup Foundation, and Ove Arup was, of course, the engineer who worked together with Jorn Utzon and later Peter Hall on building this amazing building where we are today. We've titled tonight's talk Life on Land and acknowledge that land means more than just the ground and soil on which we are. Tonight, we're going to explore how Indigenous-led design thinking can connect with innovative, sustainable practices and offer insights and strategies to provoke and inspire. Before I hand over to our guests, I did want to mention some of the topics that have informed tonight's talk and to keep in mind during our conversation. So one is the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. These are a set of 17 goals agreed to by many of the world leaders to build a greener, fairer, better world by 2030. Tonight we've responded specifically to Global Goal 15, Life on Land. And its goals are big. So Goal 15, aims to protect, restore and promote sustainable use of terrestrial ecosystems, sustainably managed forests, combat desertification and halt and reverse land degradation and biodiversity loss. So they're big problems. 
So how can we relate to these on a personal level and come up with inspiring solutions from a local bottom-up avenue? Something else that's inspired tonight's talk is the Utsun design principles. And we're currently celebrating the 20th anniversary of when they were published. So these are a set of principles set out by Jorn Utsun in 2003 as a way to think about the heritage and future conservation of the Sydney Opera House. And I'd love us to think about how we can look after the built environment and all the buildings that we love while still allowing changes necessary for planetary health and climate change. And finally, there's a particular image that really resonates with me when we think about life on land. It's an image that's called Earthrise and it was taken by the astronaut William Anders on December the 24th, 1968 from the Apollo 8, from the spacecraft. It really encapsulates the fragility of the planet, but it also shows how it exists as one being. When we're on the ground and we look up and we see the sky and the clouds and the stars, but when you look at it from far away, it really is one organism. So I'd also like to think and maybe have a discussion with our guests and yourselves on how art and creativity can play a part in all of this, how one photograph can really, in a way, as... Um, Somebody had said, this is the most influential environmental photograph ever taken, and it is often noted as being the beginning of the modern environmental movement. So enough from me. Let's start um, and open the floor to our guest speakers. Um, I've asked each speaker to introduce themselves by way of a presentation with images um, of the work that they do and some of the um, ideas and part of the journey that's got them to where they are today and then we'll all collectively be responding to the idea of life on land. So I'll hand over to Leanne. Thank, thank you. you. Wonderful, thanks so much, Joni. And thank you everybody for joining us tonight. It's really wonderful to be here and wonderful to see you all. So I'm going to start, I'm gonna give you a brief rundown of my career to date, starting from the very beginning. So this is the beginning, like in 1985, is the beginning of dinosaur designs. So we were a company that we are a company that makes some um, homewares and jewellery and different accessories. And for me personally, my whole life it was always very much about creativity. And from as long as I could remember, I've always been making things and had a very um, you know the life was always something about what we could make and enjoying the whole creative and artistic practice. And in year ten at school, I heard there was such a thing as art school. And at the time, that was um, Alexander Mackey, which then became Kofa College of Fine Arts and now UNSW Art and Design. So when I heard that such a thing existed, I just knew that that's exactly what I wanted to do with my life. So after um, finishing school, I went to to Kofa and I studied um, drawing and painting and studied there for four years doing visual arts. And with Creative practice, you know, I was interested in so many different things. And in the 80s, it was also a time where not everything is as readily available as it is now. So now anything you want, you just go online, you go to a shop, anything you want really is there. But in the 80s, if you wanted to, um, you know, dress differently or wanted to have something, it was very much about how you could be resourceful and how you could make it. And, you know, I used to make all my own clothes and handbags and, you know, everything because it was very much about creativity and expression and trying to express something different that you couldn't necessarily buy. So when I was at college, I met my partners, Louise and Steve, and we thought when you go to art school, you study to be a painter, but often it can take you know, 10 years or more till you understand, you know, that you have something to say and something that you want to share with the world. 
and it was really important that we could graduate and do something that we could be self-sufficient. Um, and it was also an expression of, of our work. So we started a stall at Pennington Markets and every Friday night we'd be there making little bits of um, FEMO or bits of found materials that we got from reverse garbage and we'd paint them all night long and then take them to the market stall on Saturday and, and have a stall and sell them. And we did that for about a year and a half. And when we graduated from college, um, it was a really good background for us because we could leave college and we'd sort of set a career up for ourselves in a way. So we... Um, we're very fortunate we got offered to have an exhibition at a shop at the time called Cash Palace and they gave us an exhibition and we made special jewellery and that went really well and then we started selling in Melbourne and um, then there was an exhibition at the Powerhouse Museum and the Victorian Albert Museum in London of Australian fashion and so we went over to London for the exhibition and we started to wholesale worldwide um, and we opened a shop in um, the Strand Arcade, a tiny little shop in 1989 and that went really well. So the next year we opened one in Paddington, which is still there. So over the time, it was a process of growing from something very small into slowly growing into something larger that then turned into an international company. And I was with the company from 1985 to 2010. And when I left, we'd had like 70 staff and stores in New York. And you can see some of the exhibitions that we've had around the world. So for me, wanting to have a career that was about creativity and freedom um, you know, it was a really fantastic project to be involved in. Around 2005, I started reading so many things about the environment, things that they said were going to happen in the future were suddenly happening, and it became really quite apparent that the planet was um, in a lot of trouble. So I became, you know, thinking, what could we do? We were already, you know, conscious about what we were doing, but what, what more could we do? Because it felt like a really, um, a really emergency situation. So, you know, you start with like the ripples, you do what you can to yourself and to your house and then your work and what you can do in your community. And um, it also was a real, it was a catalyst in the world because things were really changing. And you could see a lot of things were coming to light. For example, artists who went to the middle of the ocean, you can see this one there, Chris Jordan, he went to the middle of the ocean midway in the middle of nowhere and he found that these birds, when you cut them open, they were full of plastic. And all these things had been going on, but it really took an artist to show this, you know, what was happening so we could see things in a different way. And Captain Charles Moore, who went out to sea, um, you know, started scooping up bits of the ocean and found there was microplastics in this huge Pacific garbage patch in the middle of the ocean that we weren't aware of before. It's from the 1950s, it's the cover of Life magazine. And the headline was, Oh bliss, oh joy, plastic is invented, our life is going to be better. And plastic was actually invented... Um, you know, people do things for a good reason and it was invented to make life convenient and you think of women particularly who were chained to the kitchen or, you know, had spent so much time on household duties and plastic was invented and it was a way that they could free up their time and, and it was kind of a liberation in a way. But with humanity, like, we're just so smart. We just develop so fast and from making a little bit of plastic to help somebody on a picnic, we were suddenly making gazillions of tonnes of plastic and we've just... Like, we really are too smart for our own good. So you can see different designers are thinking now that we understand what we've done, and it's really only in 50 years that this has accelerated. Um, designers using, 
using this problem as a solution in a way. So like Emily Pilaton invented this thing for girls in Africa that they could wheel the water because in the past girls had to go and collect the water and that meant they couldn't go to school because they're spending all day collecting water. So there are some fantastic design things that were invented to make life easier for people. Um, you can see over here David de Rothschild, who invented a thing called the Plastiki, which sailed from San Francisco to Australia via the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And he made this huge vessel completely made from innovative plastic materials. It had solar panels on it. They grew their own vegetables. And it was completely a sustainable craft. And he sailed from San Francisco to Sydney to highlight the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. So there's all these interesting things going on. And... At the time also, Australia and America were the only two countries that hadn't signed the Paris Climate Agreement. And Al Gore, who was vice president at the time, he studied in Hawaii, like in his early days, and he saw that his lecturer had seen the correlation between carbon emissions going up and the temperature going up. And he could see this progression starting from the 50s. And he thought, this is something I have to bring to people's attention. It's really important. This is a dangerous situation. And he went on to become, you know, the second most important person in the world. You think of all his position and all his influence. Um, but he still couldn't get action on climate change. So he thought, I can't do it at a government level as much as I'd like to, and it's really urgent. So what I'm going to do is go and speak to audiences, to speak to people, person by person, bring awareness to what's going on, and hopefully that will be a way to create change. So he started doing these talks around America, and he made the film, which you've probably all seen, An Inconvenient Truth, which was an amazing summary of what was going on at the time. And he selected Australia to train people to... Um, go out into their communities and speak to people. So in 2007, I trained with the Climate Project. It was a fantastic, fantastic training, and we went to Melbourne, and, we, and Al Gore came here, and we had the best scientists in the world with the latest information, and they just, you know, we learnt everything. It was a really intensive thing. And then we all go out to our own communities. There were people there from across Australia, from all sorts of different backgrounds and then we go and speak to our community and my particular community that I like to speak to and I think because we're certainly very visual people it's like architects designers um, artists people that we, we interpret information visually so yes I did the climate project in 2007 and then alongside with work like doing things what can we do we have green energy we look at our freight we look at how we can minimize everything to be you know as environmentally conscious, looking at different materials and innovation, things like that. Also using what, what the, what the um, pieces are is to communicate. So in 2007, I designed this range, Mother Nature, and it was all about how can we look at the beauty of nature if you understand that something's beautiful, you don't want to hurt it. So for example, like there's butterfly wings because the butterflies can be affected by the temperature and you know, the, the seasonal anomalies. And it was really a call to our audience for the first time to, to look at things and then to appreciate it. Um, and then one with bamboo, so we can look at all the incredible properties of bamboo. And pearl was inspired by ocean acidification and how the warming oceans are, are causing something like a pearl mightn't be able to create itself in the future because of the warming oceans. And then the last one I did at Dinosaur was inspired by Paul Stamets's talk, Seven Ways That Mushrooms Can Save the World, and the incredible properties of fungus, which is a phenomenally great um, talk, and there's a movie of it now, if, if you're interested. So then I started 
working on different projects after I left Dinosaur. This was one of them. We went on this fantastic tour across all the art communities at the top of Australia. And when we went to Elko Island, we met Mavis Gannambar, and she told us um, weaving, which was an incredible experience. And when we got back on the boat, another person, Julie Green, who was another artist that I studied with, we started thinking, how can we take the problem of like plastic pollution in the ocean and this incredibly you know, great technique of weaving and combine them to turn the problem into a solution. So we started getting old plastic bags, which everybody has under their kitchen sink, and, you know, we know how terrible that they are, and how can you turn that negative thing into a positive thing? So if you cut the plastic bags into long strips, you can make a thing called plan, which is plastic yarn, and we started using these plastic, old plastic bags to make baskets. And it's kind of grew. We started having little events in the park and at different places to teach people these techniques and how they could get rid of their plastic bags and turn them into something useful. And in the end, there was an incredible, um, there was a day, 350 Day of Action, which was a global event, and it was actually held in Sydney at the Sydney Opera House here, where we, we got the community and we made 350 baskets out of plastic bags to highlight um, climate change. And all the different performances and all the different actions that were here at the Opera House that was beamed Times Square and all around the world to show that we're all united to solve problems of climate change. Then the next thing after that is with another designer friend called Sarah King. We did this project called Supercyclers, and that was about how to take the plastic and look at it as another material, and that was heating it and using it in different ways to show that it's not necessarily a terrible wasteful product. It's something that is actually quite beautiful. And if you look at the plastic bags, if you look at it as a material, it's actually really beautiful. And rather than to look at it as something you'd throw out, it's to see the inherent beauty in it. This was another one. It was um, superblown made of glass. So with supercyclers, the idea is not that you necessarily recycle it and turn it into something else. It's how you can quickly and immediately transform something. The Bombay Sapphire bottle and the champagne bottle and different bottles if you heat it up and you blow it, these bubbles are like capturing the breath and turning in, you know, something that you might throw out into something that you might appreciate that's useful and beautiful. This was a project I did with Heidi Dockerlil in 2011 called Happy Talk, and we did this in Hyde Park. And the focus of this was that in Australia, we're very much focused on Europe and America, but do we even know our neighbours? Do we know the names of the countries that surround us? Do we know, know how to say hello in these countries? And with rising oceans and climate change, how can we be sympathetic and empathetic to our neighbours if we don't really know our neighbours well? So this project was inspired by Pacific Islands and traditional skills and crafts and how we can use them in everyday ways. And also... This was in the city in Hyde Park, so if you're in an office block, you could look down and you could see what was happening from all levels. We, it was the rainy season, so we made a tarp inspired by a Cook Island Tivaivai, and we worked with different Pacific um, nations and groups around Sydney to do different um, projects and events. So you can see in the top corner, there's Michael West, who did the traditional Welcome to Country with a Cook Island dancer, who did an incredible performance. And we had different performers come and come and dance in Hyde Park. And, you know, you think it might be an unusual situation, but you just think that's much more, this is where we're from and this is our neighbours and this, we really need to be seeing a lot more of this. So we had workshops every single day and then every Friday we had a thing called Lay Day, which was a welcome where people could learn from a different artist of how to do a traditional welcome, um, which is often a lay. We did bicycle basket workshops 
weaving um, here and different projects from waste materials. And we commissioned this incredible um, bilum from the Goroka weavers in Papua New Guinea. So you can see people here. It was very much about engagement and community and learning skills and bringing joy to the city. Yes, and then so um, there's an exhibition called Interpretations where Andrew Simpson, designer, gives us a particular topic and then we have to respond to this topic. And the first one was bronze sand casting and that you're just given this topic and you have to create something with it. So um, bronze sand casting is a very traditional um, method where you just make something, you cast it into sand and then the sand is... Um, you know, broken down so that there's no waste. And then you have this um, object which then can be fully recycled because bronze is a fully recyclable material. Then this one here with stone, it was all offcuts from a place that makes kitchen benches and they had this huge big skip out the front of all the offcuts. So, um, you know, we worked to grind that and turn that into useful objects. And then the final one here, it's another experimental collective from Melbourne by Dale Harneyman. And that was um, made from pumice, which had washed up on the beach and ground with a stone to create useful objects. As a provocation to the speakers as well, we've asked how they particularly respond to um, life on land. So, um, Leanne, maybe you just want to let us know a little bit about um, why you chose this particular image. So this is a picture of the park down at the end of my street and we've lived in the same house for 20 or so years and when we walk to the end of the park, we're very lucky that Centennial Park is there. And every time I walk through those gates, I see this image of the lake and the, you know, the trees reflected and the ducks swimming and to me, I just walk through that gate and I feel immediate joy. And life on land to me, this park is just such a saviour and particularly during lockdown or if it's rainy, if it's sunny, if it's night, if it's morning, I always feel this incredible joy when I walk into the park and I'm surrounded by, by nature. So that's why I've picked this, this image. Thanks. Yeah, I think it's um, obviously from a lot of your work as well, you know, the materiality and the, the, the things that you make your work out of aren't just resources, but they are, you know, they continue to, be, to live and continue to be alive in your, in your, in your objects. Um, Jifu, did you want to respond to um, this image about a particular place that you go to to connect to with nature? Yeah, I, th I think an image like this really captures a sense and a quality of the, the sort of ephemeral. So we're seeing here, we're seeing sun, we're seeing dappled light, we're seeing water, we're seeing landscape and, you know, how they sort of coexist and, and start to, you know, understand that sort of interplay. Um, in that sort of system way of thinking. And, you know, what an incredible body of work um, Leanne has shown as well in terms of, I guess, understanding that um, we operate within a social licence and it comes with certain obligations and responsibilities. And so those responsibilities to the planet and looking at ways where we can actually use our skills and our ca capabilities to really interrogate um, what is possible, I, I think was really incredible. Yeah. That's great. So um, I think maybe we'd like to um, get the audience a bit more involved now. And we've got a particular question and we want you to think about um, if there's a particular space um, that you go to, a particular place where you connect to with nature. Um, so um, I can think of a particular place um, uh, near my house and it was a, it was a great uh, refuge as well during COVID to really appreciate um, how important green spaces are and public spaces and it was just a, a simple swing that somebody had um, attached to this beautiful old fig tree and it was just a really great um, 
combination of um, you know the human made with something really old and ancient, and it was a it was a great place that I went to and I um, found solace in. So we'd really love you to talk about places that you go to in nature that um, I guess transforms you um, and makes you think about the bigger picture from a small micro place. Um, and we'll we'd love to hear back from you. So who who's keen to go first? Who would like to share with with the audience what what you spoke about? And I feel a bit like I'm a teacher in school now. But um, so um, how about this group over here? Um, yeah, and and maybe um, speak loudly so everyone can hear you. <laughs> We'd like to stand up, Lisa. Thank you. About um, about how we spent our lockdowns primarily and where we where we love to be and um, I think you know the three of us agreed that um, Sydney was an amazing place to be during lockdown and we all you know love the harbour and um, the national parks around us and, um, and and so you know just a great place to be so we really I think we appreciated that more during that time that we had to spend in it and likewise in Melbourne you know similar places that you know call to us. Hmm. Amazing, amazing how a time of crisis like that can actually make you really appreciate, um, and especially, you know, green places and places in nature. So is that something you had um, as well experienced in, in Melbourne? Um, yes. I'm locked down for a long time. <laughs> oh, yes, of course, there are different varying degrees of... Right, so um, Melbourne had a longer lockdown and you went to the gardens every day, which sounds wonderful. Yeah, more public urban green spaces. Who else has an experience, maybe... Um, Stand up, please, if you'd like to share, or another city, or maybe a, a, another kind of space you connect to, connect to to nature that may not necessarily have been a park or a garden. We talk, we've got very different places, so for me it's the sea. Particularly there's a sea pool in between Maroubra and Coogee called the Marne Pool, which is hidden. And what I like about it is the, the tumultuousness of it. So being in the water while there's all this movement around. And, um, uh, and I'm, give me the top of a mountain. I'm a snowboarder. <laughs> and I'm like, get off the lift and go the extra 10 or 20 metres up so that there's no humans. <laughs> and then sit. There's something about the ratio of land to sky to people or lack of my happy place. So we talked about what we had in common was the expansiveness, but also being able to marvel, but also to be present to the it's much bigger than ourselves and the claustrophobia, get away from the claustrophobia of COVID and just be, be in the expansive world. And it's interesting, even in a time of lockdown where you weren't able to be with other people, when you were able to get away, it was still about being alone, but with this huge, beautiful experience. Um, we've probably got a bit more time for somebody else, maybe up the back. Yes, thank you. Well, I'm going to be a bit of a different angle. Uh, you know, I, I serve, so I like it. But I took the tram here, where the fig trees used to, to exist before the tram line, the new tram line. Can you connect to nature in the absence of, of nature, right? Or the lack thereof makes you connected to what it is. So uh, sometimes I think, like, even in the big city where there's no trees or no nature, you're still getting connected because you remind yourself that something used to be there. So, uh, I guess it's a good Absolutely, and I think something probably definitely that um, Jifa will, will, will talk about, about when, in, in that absence, is, is it absent? Um, how can we find those connections and those um, points of reference that, um, to, make, to make those things, um, the spirit alive again and the objects alive again to heal 
um, those bits that have been erased. But definitely, um, sometimes there's that spirit's still there, like you said, even if it's a tram line. So I think that, that was great. I'm glad everyone got involved, and I hope you met some new people. Um, so we'll move on now. We'll, um, we'll have uh, Jeepa's presentation and, and his response to Life on Land, and then we'll have another conversation. So thank you, Jeepa. Uh, thank you, and, and thanks for having me. And it's, it's, it's always terrific to be here on the unceded sovereign lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and understand that they have been the custodians of cu country here for, for millennia. Um, so Yamamalia, hello friend. And the reason I always start with language is with the diminution of language, we lose those connections to culture. And there is certainly a sort of revitalisation of how we start to stitch back um, those dormant languages that do exist across this island continent. And I guess in terms of the sort of journey I'm going to sort of take you on is a bit of a reflection on my sort of modes of practice as, a, as an architect. And I always start with this image because what it talks to for me is that sort of people-centred approach to design practice but we are walking on the shoulders of giants and you know, always connecting to kin, connecting to family, connecting to elders, those who are no longer with us um, is always important. And so, um, and, and my, my late father, Bert Groves, was born at a time only six years after Federation. So there's a really interesting link through time and history and memory. And that really, I guess, resonates with ways in which I think about design practice. And, what we're certainly encountering at the moment is an understanding that uh, across the Australian experience, we have burnt country, we have felled country, we have poisoned country. The bloodstains of Indigenous people are encoded here in country. But ultimately, we're at a point now where we can start to think about how we can heal country, how we can restore, remediate and repair country through design practice and through the ways in which we think about place. And so it's always important to understand that we are on country, regardless of whether we're in a major metropolis like Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane, or we're in a remote centre or a regional centre. We're always on country. And we can concrete over country, but country still exists. The stories still remain in place. And you know, part of my uh, ways of working is to reveal those layers of history and memory by making the invisible visible. And so... The way in which I've sort of organised this presentation is to think about it through a series of different scales. And so we do you know, a range of projects, vast in scale but very intimate as well. And so this project here um, is a very tiny little intervention within the city. And essentially what it was was a, a desire to understand and to orient what, orientate oneself to country uh, in Melbourne, on Wurundjeri country. And it was to include a ceremonial pause point, a place for contemplation and reflection. And so this was a very strong collaborative model of practice where we spoke to elders, we tr spoke to traditional owners, elders and knowledge keepers who are the custodians of culture um, in this particular context of the Kula Nation. And so here within a, a very colonial building um, in Melbourne, and by including this idea of that interface between architecture, urban design, public art, activation, um, became a sort of a coalescence of different design ideas to one point of, of, of pause. And so what we created here was um, a smoking uh, ceremonial space. And so 
I remember uh, doing another project where we incorporated a, a, a smoking dish and we had a scenario whereby fire and en engineers were called in and they were sort of um, in sort of conniptions going, oh, you know, this is going to be this blazing inferno. <laughs> and I said, you do realise that essentially what we do is we get the leaves of a managum, we light them and they smoke. And then some bright spark said, oh, so it's a, it's a leaf smouldering platform. <laughs> And the moment they changed the nomenclature of how they framed what this intervention was, all those problems went away. So, um, but importantly here, what you'll actually see is we've encoded in bronze a reimagining and understanding of what country was pre-contact and then circumnavigating around this um, element, we've actually shown some sites of significance for Wurundjeri. And in some instances, we're actually engaging with difficult truths because we're actually showing sites of trauma, but equally showing sites of significance, sites of memory, sites of connection, and gathering spaces of significance to, to Wurundjeri people. And so while it's, it's very small, the significance is, is really important. So there is this moment where one can actually uh, embed cultural practice as a sort of a normative experience within a major city like Melbourne. And then moving on to a completely different scale, I call this a, the community scale. And what this project is, it's a 26-kilometre cultural trail adjacent to an important tributary of the, the Birrung, or the, the River of Mist, known better as the Yarra River. Uh, and this is called the Plenty River. And we were asked to um, contribute through a series of crossing points. And the way in which we sort of orchestrated this was to look at how we understand that relationality to country. And so the way in which we organise is across a number of different domains. So we're crossing country, we're hearing country, we're seeing country, but it's always relating to and referencing the watercourse, the lifeblood of any community. And those crossing points become a different way to experience that particular um, ecological system. And then by starting to organise it across a number of different, different domains, we looked at each characteristics of those different crossing points. And then we were able to reveal that there were different things happening. So one was a pedestrian bridge, one was a bridge, a crossing point with, with vehicle access, and another one was an existing heritage bridge. And so this particular one um, was really important because what it's actually referencing is the colours of country. So understanding the geology, understanding the stratums and the layers, and then starting to use colour as a signifier, as a counterpoint. And so it became really important to also understand how it touches the, the earth lightly in terms of how we located, orientated and positioned this crossing point. And so importantly too, you can see here, this is a completely different experience. This was a, an old pipe bridge. So essentially they had a big trunk of stormwater system uh, and a pipe carrying um, through this bridge. And then we sleeved in this new intervention, which is referencing the cherry ballard, which is endemic in this particular area. And we started to encode that through colour. Um, and it was really interesting to start to have the conversations with um, the heritage authorities. Like, oh, you've got to be careful. This bridge was, you know, was built in you know, 1920 or, or whenever. You had really deep history. I'm going, well, that's all well and good. We can respect that. But how do we start to embed and connect to the deeper history of this place? And how do we start to give voice and agency to the collaborative model of foregrounding uh, Indigenous voice through the journey and the process of realising and executing this particular project? 
And then you can see how we're starting to encode meaning and starting to look at you know, that sort of forms of cultural expression. And I would argue in the hands of an Indigenous person, we can actually embrace cultural expression in the built and natural environment. And so if you think about all the uh, artistic and creative practices in which we punch above our uh, weight, the built and natural environment is kind of the last bastion, but it's the one most you know, strongly and viscerally connected to country, and this is where it becomes really important, is to think about the contribution we can make in terms of that notion of restore and, and repairing and remediating country. And then from the, the sublime to the ridiculous, from that really intimate scale to a massive scale. So this project is an $11.1 billion major infrastructure uh, project in Melbourne. And importantly here, it's within proximity to uh, the tributary of the, the Yarra River, the, the Birrarung, and there's parkland setting, this landscape condition, and you can see a series of um, you know, recreational spaces in this floodplain. And so one of the key markers here is this vent outlet um, for this tunnel, uh, you know, a six-kilometre tunnel. But what we've done is we've stitched that east-west connection across in terms of this uh, creation of a land bridge. And so, again, this becomes a really important thing. And we underscored the methodology by relating to the International Indigenous Design Charter, a best practice document in terms of developing culturally responsive design practice. So process becomes also really significant and important in our sort of ways of working. Um, and then the final one, the civic scale. So starting to look at, in this instance, it's a, a wetland centre. And starting to repair this degraded landscape, um, which was a tip. Um, and then there's a sort of debris, and we're starting to look at ways to repurpose the material found on site and starting to create and choreograph an experience as we start to mediate that relationship to a really important wetland system. So again, understanding the particular bioregion we're operating in, how we start to engage with place, how we start to mediate the relationship to built form, landscape, urban design, wayfinding and, and incorporation of language and First Nations design principles. And so you, this is a sort of um, the, the model to give you a sort of a sense of the look and the feel. But again, it, it's really about understanding that our approach to design practice is certainly about underscoring the importance of the journey that we go on. Um, and importantly, in terms of how we start to bring on board the cultural interlocutors as the mechanism to empower a range of different voices with the community, with traditional owners, um, and understanding how we can start to create that relationship, particularly in terms of sharing knowledge. This notion of knowledge exchange has become really important. So this wetland centre is a place of education, of learning, of understanding you know, the, the relationship, particularly in terms of that interconnectedness of all things, that holistic approach to country whereby we understand that flora and fauna and sky and cosmology and spirit are all very much interplaying with each other and that we are part of that broader system. We don't sit in that sort of um, egocentric um, top of the pyramid, it starts to think about it in a much more um, integrated way where we're just one piece of the puzzle and trying to find those notions of balance, uh, balancing the ecology, balancing the, the challenges that we're confronting and understanding, for instance, notions of circular time as opposed to linear time, where we measure time through heartbeats, through the rhythms and cycles of the seasons, through you know, relationship to memory and experience, that sort of phenomenological approach. And so you can see you know, there's, there's a, a depth of thinking in terms of how we start to um, 
encode meaning in the projects that we undertake. Barry Yania, go well. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. It was a, a great presentation. I think um, really um, special to have so many examples of how the built environment can actually be used in that process of healing, which is something quite you know, um, crazy when you think about it and how um, so often it's been part of the destruction. Um, and we can explore that more in the conversation because I've got quite a few burning questions, as I'm sure the audience does. But um, I guess we definitely, it was a provocation to have you respond to the, the, the quote, life on land, from what you've just been talking about, how um, you know, it is so holistic and there is not just land. It, 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 everything's involved. So um, maybe you'd like to present your image and how you've, you've um, responded to that. So f for me, life on land has many layers to it. And... Ultimately, for me, the, the relationship between land is really a, a relationship of how we can start to design for country. Not on country, but for country. And, and that you know, is really starting to germinate. And there's a lot of interest, um, particularly here in New South Wales, with some of the terrific work the Government Architects Office is doing with the draft framework of, of designing for country that Dylan Combermeri and others have contributed to. And so this image here is, is really a... a I guess, a sense check to say that countries is much more than land. And this image here is from the Venice Architecture Biennale, which I co-curated with Tristan Wong um, for the Australian Pavilion. And the image here is, is my sort of interpretation of the Indigenous map of Australia of the various um, distinct language groups, over 270 distinct language groups and 600 dialects. And it speaks to multiplicity, it speaks to diversity, it speaks to a rich tapestry um, and ultimately, it's also about understanding that land encodes meaning and memory and kinship and language. So it is much more than the sort of topographic features and the sort of watercourses and the mountain ranges. But it starts to think about it not only in that sort of helicopter view looking down, but understanding also in section. So understanding that land relates to water, which relates to subterranean, which you know, connects to sky country. So we start to think about it in a much more sophisticated way and understanding that everything is interconnected. And that to me is, is really the, the nub and the essence of, of this relationship to uh, life on land. Mm. Thanks. And it's also, I think for this image as well, it's not so much life on land, it's actually living on land and how all when you have this, you know, this collection of small spaces and places and everybody just looking after that particular space, you know, once you bring it together, you have the whole land and the whole country. So I think that's my response um, in how the micro can become the macro, how you start small, you start local, and then if everybody just, you know, takes care of that one or two or three, four things that they need to, then there's enough care spread around and it's not overwhelming. Um, so that's, I guess, the question as well that we can discuss how we might all have particular examples of local small activities that um, we, we do through our living. Um, I'll ask Leanne as well to respond to. Mm. And I think particularly because we did um, cut your conversation oh. short, specifically what, what you do um, at Super Local Studio, in your own studio. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'd love you to respond to this image, but I'd also mm -hmm. love to talk about how you, um, I guess, activate that place um, mm -hmm. in that suburb on that corner. You know, this evokes to me many drops make an ocean, and it's very much about, you know, what you were both were saying and how if we all come together doing our own little small bits, it all comes together to, for the greater good. And 
I do think that's really important because I know that we, you know, there's so many things and life can become overwhelming, but if we all do our own little bit and connect with people and we grow, that really, to me, feels like a, a very immediate um, and positive way that we can create change. So things go on at all sorts of different levels, um, you know, personally and then companies and all different ways. Um, but if we all come together and take care in everything we do, I do think that we can you know, achieve everything that needs to be achieved to care for country. Hmm. Right, thanks. Okay, so now we're going to involve the audience. Um, so the question that we're posing to you is, what particular activities um, are you involved in, in your local community or the local place that you are? Um, and I'm thinking things like, um, you know, street festivals or, um, you know, ceremonies or um, you know, uh, things that, that you do in your own community that maybe could be shared and um, go out into the world. What inspiring local activities do you have in your community that can be played out on a bigger scale? So that's, that's summed up <laughs> in one question. Um, so, yeah, and we'll, we'll hear back from you. Who would like to share? Yes. Um, again, two different. I don't even know her, and I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, so uh, what I what I love is the concept and design of uh, places like Lentil as Anything in Newtown. Yep, Lentil as Anything. Yeah. Like my for the children in my life and the youth in my life went to learn how to contribute but also to learn personal skills like waitering and service and coffee and that. So on one hand, they're, they experience being acknowledged and learning, but then the other side of it is that the people can come and it feeds the homeless and the people that can't afford to eat in Newtown and allows for people that have enough wealth to contribute food. Like a, like a, But it's a really uh, an intimate um, contribution. It's not kind of like chucking some coins in a jar, do you know what I mean? It's, it's literally providing dessert for a stranger or providing a meal and I, I really like that, mm. the way there's so many wins in that design, including the being able to donate food that you don't need to, like the so companies can donate that. So I'd like to see more of them, that, those kind of restaurants. Mm. A great initiative, a restaurant, so it's about food, it's about sharing and it's about people. Yeah. Um, so and for those that don't know, um, contribute what you have. So right. you, there's no set price on foods. People give what they want. If you have a lot, you give. If you don't. And have a free community space that people that have a skill can donate that skill inside of. So if, you're, if you love yoga, you can donate yoga to the community and people come and it's free or they can coin a view love art, if there's a particular skill. So I've, I've, I know people that teach knitting, that teach, you know, all those kind of things, contribution. That's what I love about Fantastic. it. Fantastic. And then I love yours because I would not go anywhere near yours. Very simple. I just like dog parks. And, I, you know, I think isolation is a, is social isolation particularly. It's a really, it's a, it's a poison. To kind of like, you know, really is not good for people to be isolated. It has a lot of, negative mental health and social health impacts and I the simple thing of being able to interact with somebody's dog even if you own a dog or whether you don't own a dog I think mm -hmm. it's a real opportunity to be noticed noticed connect in a very simple way so more spaces for non-humans for humans to connect with non-humans I agree I think we a lot of spaces should be open to non-humans humans to help us bridge that divide because, because you know 
we do isolate ourselves and human is that it's the it's the bridge that you know whatever what's pet whether it's a pet or whether it's a community garden it's we need something to help us connect sometimes and a dog park is a very simple idea to do that and can't go wrong with it. anyone else um share something that they've maybe um started yes uh, i live in green square they like the way they are in like put the community together mm. all the buildings that is our union around like there's a way why they are building that in that position they have like many parks there is um another park that is coming up and they they they, they have a full area there with a gym and a park where mm. everything is powered by solar solar energy so i think this is a very uh, great way to put the community and like see how our city can be sustainable and green square as you said is a very it's an interesting concept because it was quite a new suburb yeah. almost from from the from the bottom um with lots of new buildings but also good spaces for community which is what you've just said is, is really important for people to connect um but yeah and good um i think an example to other new developments what works what doesn't okay so um well, we might go on now to um, some conversation um, with our guests, um, or we can talk more a bit about um, some of the ideas in your own work and how they connect. Um, so I'm probably going to go straight on to Leanne um, and ask you a bit about some of, um, I guess, some of the work that you make as a designer um, and the materials that you use. Um, and obviously, they're not, you don't do mass production. Um, there's not a lot of things that are created, but each one does embody um, the materials that you use and so how do you view the resources and, and how do you um, use it to um, spread, spread your message? Mm -hmm. So usually with my work it's all project based and so I look at what I'm trying to communicate and then I look at the materials that I'll use to communicate what I'm talking about. So more recently I've been working quite a lot with ceramics which I've found is a really beautiful material because it comes from the earth. You work with your hands and it's just such a beautiful material to work with. If you like what you make, you can fire it and it lasts for thousands of years. If not, you just put it back to water and it, you can start again. So it has a really nice circular principle about it, which I really like, as well as the earthiness of it. Um, so as a material, I've really enjoyed working with that. And some of the things that I use to create the ceramics for are things that are... Um, it's a, it's a body of work called Sweet Nature, which is all about how do we bring more nature into our life and how do we appreciate the sweetness of nature and, you know, how do we do everything that we can to address um, the beauty of nature. So I've done things like looking at, um, for example, like pesticides, which are a terrible invention that kill plants, kill insects. We've got insectageddon going on at the moment because we're so obsessed by spraying and killing everything, but they're actually a really important part of the ecosystem. So we kill the plant, kill the insects, kill ourselves. And really, if you just appreciate the beauty of a weed or you just look at something in a different way, you can appreciate nature in a different way. Um, the same, you know, with bees, with, there's a terrible bee situation going on because of these pesticides that we're spraying and then bees, which is so inherently important to everything in life. How do we, how do, how do we look at um, bringing that more into our life and appreciating it? So for me, the material is really important. And then usually I do it um, on an exhibition um, basis and so that I can engage with the audience and communicate what the different um, topics are about. Hmm. And, and the design of the exhibition, how that's made, what's that made from everything I do. I like to not have any waste at the end of the project, so it's all designed 
not just for the exhibition, but it's designed for after the exhibition. You know, it, tipping it all in landfill is not the answer. It's how you think about the end from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, maybe just sticking to that topic of um, materials and new uses, maybe you can talk a little bit about your own studio and, and how you've adapted a building that perhaps okay. was... I have um, a building in Bondi Junction called Superlocal Studio and it was a very sort of derelict building um, on, a, on a corner which I think has really great potential to be a bit of a heart in the area. So the building, that's over 100 years old and it needed, um, you know, bringing back electricity, floors, water, that kind of thing. And what the goal is, is to make the building, you know, a beautiful example of sustainable beauty, but also um, things that happen in there and are an incubator for things that can happen and grow to become bigger projects. So we had a like an area of dead grass out the front and I think Sydney, we're notorious, you plant grass and the, the council comes in and mows the dead grass and you've sort of got mowed dead um, land everywhere. But it's actually like so full of life and so full of potential. So planted out um, lots of native pollinators to bring back the birds and the bees and the butterflies and now we've got beautiful rainbow lorikeets that come and eat the flowering gum and it's just this... Um, you know, we're surrounded by this potential and we're seeing that happen more and more, how people are, you know, creating verges in front of their house and it's really such a great thing to do just to bring life, um, you know, to humans but to the whole ecosystem in an urban environment. Mm. So, yes, yes. No, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful patch and I think, once again, a really great example of a bottom-up bottom up initiative that, um, you know, has spread and um, obviously not, not so easy to do, like you said, because of all the council regulations, but something that I think everybody just needs to kind of get their hands dirty a bit. Yeah, it's changing. Like, in the, in the last eight years, just seeing how things are changing, it's really, it's, mm. it's a great thing. So maybe keeping on that, um, G, for this idea that country is so much more than land, um, and as someone who, who's an architect and, and, and since we are talking about the built environment, I'm really interested in how um, you also look at resources and building materials and how they, I guess, continue to live in the built environment. Maybe you can talk a bit about that designing on country specifically for a building on such a big scale. Yeah, well, the, the notion of sustainability is, is kind of a, a no-brainer from an Indigenous sort of worldview. And I often use the metaphor of the scar tree as a way of sort of reinforcing the sort of the, the notion that Indigenous people in the Australian context were the, the first architects, the first landscape architects, the first ecologists. Because you don't cut down the tree to remove the bark to make a canoe. You only remove that which you need. And so what happens is the tree remains intact you can harvest further material through time. It provides shelter. It provides a home and a habitat for the ecological system that is in proximity to the tree. But equally, what it does is it tells a story about time because what happens when you remove the, the bark to make a kulamon or a canoe, it, over time it grows back and then it becomes like a slit. So it, it tells you that this is a place of, of, of great age and, and connection. And these are also mnemonic markers in the landscape. So they become orientating devices of country and they signify places of importance and significance like corroborate grounds or burial sites for elders and, and so forth. But equally what it talks to is this idea of um, 
ecological practice and circular design and you know, you know thinking about embodied energy is kind of enveloped and wrapped up in that one metaphor of the scar tree. And so to me, this is kind of the way in which we should all practice. That should be just embedded as a, as a normative way in which we undertake our, our roles in the built and natural environment. And so ultimately, you know, being judicious in the materials that we use, thinking about deep time as well, that we don't recycle buildings and you know, build a building and 50 years later bowl over, build another one and keep repeating this because all the waste that we create remains here. So how do we find ways where we can repurpose what we've got and start to build up those, that sort of palimpsest layers of the built and natural environment through time? And, and that, to me, I guess, is the, the essence. And we're, we're starting to see that there is a bit of a coalition of the willingness um, occurring within the built environment you know, through initiatives like Architects Declare and Planning Declare and Builders Declare, where we're starting to acknowledge the the acute challenges, the, the existential challenges of climate change and biodiversity loss. So we should be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And maybe just to go on around the advocacy that you've that you just mentioned about kind of, you know, these non-profit groups, um, maybe um, we can just talk a little bit about how um, education and sharing knowledge can, can aid this um, in finding solutions. So maybe some of the, yeah, some of the, yeah, the, the well, work you do. We, we started our practice in the, in the late 90s and I started teaching at university uh, at the same time. So they've always um, worked in parallel. And part of the reason why it seems important to me that I involve myself within design education, for instance, is because you know, I spent a decade in tertiary study and that sense and responsibility of giving back and passing on knowledge. And, you know, importantly, you know, the idea of advocacy is really a, a provocation to say that as an Indigenous practitioner, everything we do is inherently political. And so we actually need to build connections and affinities and networks where we can actually empower others and we can start to facilitate unmediated our own voice and that we can start to use our you know, requisite skills and capacities to actually inform and shape the built and natural environment as practitioners because we bring a particular sensibility, hopefully, in terms of how we conduct our own practice, but also how we can start to bring those who come um, after us and provide a, a, a pathway forward and you know, provide opportunity as well because you know often you know and we you know indigenous architecture and design victoria is the only peak body that represents indigenous practitioners within design fraternity across a range of disciplines and what's always interesting when we have a gathering we start to connect is to understand the stories of how we all came to be in, in this um, industry and invariably you know, there is just a seed or there's a possibility. But I guess I importantly too is, um, you know, understanding that that relationship to country is, is so central to why it's important that we actually operate within this space and that we start to build those affinities and, and connections and, and opportunities so we can actually, uh, you know, be part of the solution as well in terms of our own, you know, ways of practice. Mm. Um, and so before we um, open to the audience, I do want to ask um, from each of you um, maybe just to share one inspiring um, architectural design project right now that, um, 
uh, we could learn something from or we may not know about? I think it's very exciting at the moment. We've just been through lockdowns and different things going on and I think people are looking to at urban design, how can we create healthier communities? How do we create more visually beautiful and engaging communities? And I think this period of time that we've just been through has been a really good eye-opener to make people understand how important it is to create beautiful surroundings to live in. So I, f mm. I think I find that really, it's a beautiful mm. thing to see, lots of good projects coming up. It's really, it's not an add-on, it's almost like the focus of everything mm. now on how can we create a healthy, beautiful space for people and mm. everything on the planet. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, the most interesting project we're working on at the moment's only sort of just hit the boards recently and it's only just recently be sort of public announced. We got shortlisted for the Nura project in Canberra, which is a new um, mm. Indigenous cultural precinct mm. in the Parliamentary Triangle. And, yeah, we've been shortlisted within this sort of design competition. But the thing which is most powerful for me is the collaborative model that it sets up. So we've created what we're calling the Black Hand Collective, where we've got... First Nations practitioners from around Australia coming together to use their various perspectives and skills and, and experience to start to shape what this could be. And embedded within it is a national resting place of bringing home unprovenance skeletal remains from institutions around the globe back to country. And, you know, the, the, I guess the obligation and, and the, the acute... Um, sensibilities and responsibilities of this project is it's it's more than a building it's more than a project mm. you know there's there is so much to it and and we've got to get it right and um what it enables is this true notion of reciprocity and mutual benefit and opportunity where we can actually ultimately have agency and and embed self-determination through design practice mm. we'll be following what happens in canberra closely um, so I would like to now um, invite the audience to um, ask our amazing speakers some questions or comments or responses. Um, you know, we'd like to have you involved. Um, who would like to ask a question? Yeah. Um, I was, it's mainly to you, Deborah, about, um, it's really inspiring to see how much um, First Nations influence is now moving through urban architecture. I saw a lot of the projects you were showing were in Melbourne. Um, do you think the uptake through the levels of government bureaucracy or however you want to put it is enough? Are we getting to a point where um, like it feels like there's a lot of lost time that needs to be made up for or maybe a lot of time is not even relevant. Maybe it's just that it's happening. Are there blocks? Is it moving forward? So I'm just, just repeating the question um, just for, for the recording. So um, in summary, um, are things moving fast enough and, and what are the blocks, if there are, or challenges um, from, from different levels? I've been operating in this space for over two decades and there's been a fundamental shift occurring in the past five to ten years. And intriguingly, it's starting to be engaged with at multiple levels. So we're seeing policy being, you know, interrogated. We're seeing, for instance, the Architects Accreditation Council um, now stipulates as part of the core competencies in order to get registered as an architect a requirement to have a cultural dimension in part of your educational learning journey through, through design education. And so you can see, 
you know, when you think about it, if policy's starting to think about it, if design education's starting to think about it, and practitioners are asking the right questions and seeking to engage with it, it starts to build a momentum where this becomes normative. And so I, I sit on the state design review panel um, for the Government Architect in New South Wales, and the projects that sort of come forward are now asking the question, well, how are you designing for country on this particular project? And if the question is, oh, well, you haven't really considered it, it was like, well, why haven't you? I think you'll need to come back and show us how you're actually engaging with these you know, critical questions. And so while there is certainly a lot of work to be done and there's, um, I have that sense of impatience as well, um, there is some terrific work occurring. And I think in part it's by virtue of the fact that there is an emerging cohort of Indigenous practitioners who are lobbying and advocating and have actually been posing these questions over time. And now we're starting to catch up a bit and we're starting to see a number of different voices in this space starting to engage with it as well. So I'm, I'm certainly optimistic um, and that's not to say that there's, there's um, certainly a need to build one's cultural intelligence in design practice and that's kind of the key, that's the nub of it. So if you start to, to embed it as part of your um, design education, then you're equipped with the skills or the language or the capacity to have the conversations with the right people in the room. And you were saying before, Jifa, that New South Wales is, is actually leading the way in some... Well, certainly in terms of setting up frameworks and policies supported by government and starting to use that as a tool to hold people to account. That's critical. And so while it's starting to ripple out beyond uh, and across the country, I think you know, between New South Wales and Victoria, we're starting to chart a, a new territory here. In Victoria, for instance, we've legislated for treaty conversation. Mm. And that kind of presupposes that the built and natural environment will need to adapt and change to meet that reality on, on the horizon. So design practice will actually need to respond differently to start to centre that relationality the country is core to the way in which we practice. Oh, it's a fantastic thing to kind of be proud of. Um, yes. Just just on that, I guess uh, I'm interested to know how design can help heal intergenerational trauma, and I guess in terms of your work, how it can help people having climate anxiety um, overcome the challenges we inevitably going to face. Yeah, terrific question. There are many traumas encoded in country and whether it's the challenges around how we've scarred the landscape through all the various things we've done over the last couple of centuries or some of those real um, difficult truths that we need to confront. And so a lot of the work that we do is we start with a, a sense of cultural mapping. So we start to really go deep and understand the site that we're working with. And it's, it's often the case that we'll reveal some pretty compelling but pretty challenging um, narratives of that country. And so, in a way, it's about holding a mirror up to society to say, well, actually, we need to engage with this. How can we best in, in, um, yeah, confront some of these challenges? But ultimately, as I think collectively we're, we're both operating in the same space, is we understand that you know, what we do has an impact. And so therefore our modes of practice are actually adapting because you know, probably when we both started out as practitioners, this wasn't front and centre. But now we're saying, well, hang on, what legacy are we leaving for our kids? 
And so ultimately, I feel that sense of urgency to actually do better and, and keep challenging oneself and to, to try harder and find better ways and, and be innovative because that's what we're equipped to do as creatives. Um, I guess I also wanted to maybe ask um, both of you, um, what advice and ideas would you like to give the audience to take away tonight with them? Leah, well, uh, like I think I think I think everybody is a creative person inherently. You know, we drink, eat, breathe, and we create. And I think if you do have climate anxiety or if there is something you want to do, if you go into life thinking like a creator, so you think about how was that made, what went into making it, if you think about the process of everything you buy and everything you choose, from a creative point of view, I think that will help you to make really good choices. And if everybody does that, it all sort of adds up. If you can take your dollars, because when you, when you spend a dollar, you're actually voting for something. So if you can support a good company that's doing good things, I really, really believe in like putting your money where your mouth is and, and supporting the good and growing the good through your actions. So everything you buy, everything you choose, think, is there a more sustainable option? Is there a better option? Who am I giving my money to? So if you think like a creator in everything you do, I think that really does help in terms of addressing what we can in climate change from a very personal, individual level. Aditha, anything that you would like the audience to take away with them tonight? I think the, the notion that we're always on country, I think, is important. But which country? Whose country? You know, what connections and affinities do we have to the particular language groups or nations within this nation that we have, a, uh, you know, that connection to? You know, whether we're born here, we we educated here, or or we've moved. You know, all, you know, we're very um, mobile society, and so we often have relationships to many countries. So, you know, I I grew up, actually, was born here on Gadigal country. I grew up on Darkinjung country in the Central Coast. I live on Wurundjeri country, um, which is now. You know, in terms of the determinations of um, the, the uh, Aboriginal heritage actually, is actually Bunurong country, but I know the countries that I am and I know um, the importance of country as part of shaping who we are and we often say we're all country. Great. I think that's a wonderful way to um, end the night and if we care for the country, country cares for us, I think, exactly. as well. And we, we've both shown that in your work. Um, so we've run out of time. Um, Thank you all for joining us tonight. It was great to have, I think, um, two different perspectives on land and nature and design and architecture, which has unique qualities, but also I think a lot of your work has um, similarities that we've all learnt from. Um, so we will be having another talk series um, in August, um, and just keeping with the global goals, uh, the next one's called Life Below Water. Um, we, we know there's different kinds of country, there's land country, sky country, water country, um, and next time we'll be exploring more marine and watery um, environments. So thank you all, thank you Leanne, thank you Jifa. Have a clap for her again. And thank you all for being involved. And um, thank you, Caroline, as well, and the build team for working on this night. And see you next time. Bye. Thank you. That was Joni Taylor in conversation with Jifa Greenaway and Leanne Rosler. In the next episode, Joni talks with Dr. Danielle Hromek and Alex Goad, addressing United Nations Sustainable Development Goal number 14, Life Below water.